Hey there, welcome again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, coming to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we journey 50 years back in time to 1970, and we report on all the big news stories in the hockey and sporting worlds 50 years ago. This time around, we're in the week of March 9th to 15th, 1970. Now, this podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and they've been instrumental in allowing us to access all of the newspapers in hockey land in the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in Port Coburn, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall uh, make the finest craft beers in southern Ontario and have some amazing pub food all put together by the amazing staff in their kitchen. If you're in the Niagara region, you have to get a hold of me and we'll have a beer at the Breakwall. Now, in last week's show, some of these stories that we talked about were uh, the trade deadline coming and going ever so quietly, unlike the trade deadlines of the present. We'll have a little bit more on uh, the trade deadline as we start off this week's show. Uh, We talked about Vic Stasiak of the Flyers and Montreal coach Claude Ruel given contract expansions, but we wondered whether either of these guys really has a long future with either team. Uh, We also had a report on the status of baseball player Kurt Flood's challenge to his sports reserve clause and his request to be immediately declared a free agent. Now, this time around, we have have a lot of news this week uh, to cover once again. Uh, We find out that there's a couple of trades that weren't reported as the deadline for making deals passed. Uh, We're going to learn about more craziness surrounding that Vancouver Canucks Joe Crozier ongoing situation. Uh, The Canucks finally do get a coach, but not before some uh, drama, just before the man who eventually got the job was named. And we'll ask what could be wrong with the Montreal Canadiens and New York Rangers, both of whom could miss the Stanley Cup playoffs this year and that would be a shock especially for the Rangers who've been at or near first place all season. We have lots more news as well as the NHL teams are now fully engaged in the stretch run to the playoffs and we'll even have some interesting junior hockey news out of Ontario. A lot to cover once again this week so we should get right to it now. A quick note of follow-up from last week's trade deadline report, as we mentioned off the top. Uh, We must remember that uh, this is the NHL of 1970 and not 2020. And it seems back then, well, I remember I was was around those days, information was not as available or readily disseminated as we're accustomed to today. We reported last week that the trade deadline passed quietly with little or no fanfare, and there was nothing of note being reported in the media. That was true. Uh, We didn't even know it was the trade deadline back then, other than a couple of notes and a couple of columns. Everybody just kind of let it go by. But uh, because the deadline was at midnight of March 7th, 
it took a while for some news that actually did take place to actually creep out. And in one case, a couple of days it took because uh, for some reason teams couldn't get hold of players to inform them that they had been moved to another organization. There were actually two deals that were reported. And strangely enough, they were both between the Red Wings and the New York Rangers. Both deals made at the very last minute. Uh, now that why they weren't announced as one uh, big deal, uh, that's unclear. Nobody seemed to have an explanation. But here's what we've been able to figure out from the various reports that we found this week. Now, first off, Detroit traded big Peter Stemkowski, uh, who's having a great season, by the way. He's got, I think, 25 goals so far. They sent him to the New York Rangers, and that was a bit of a surprise to people. And the fellow they got in exchange was an unheralded rear guard by the name of Larry Brown. Uh, the Red Wings were desperate for defense at this time, and we think that was the motivation for the deal. Now, this was termed a separate deal by both clubs. The Wings picked up a young center by the name of Don Luce, who had been an outstanding uh, junior with Kitchener just a couple years ago, and they gave up for him a minor league right winger named Steve Andrusik. Uh And if you haven't heard of him in 1970, you weren't going to hear much from him on down the road either. Now, immediately, a monkey wrench was thrown into the machinery of these two deals on that deadline evening when Peter Stemkowski informed the Wings and the Rangers he wasn't going to report to New York. The Red Wings, desperate for help on defense, told the Rangers they didn't want to rework the deal and informed Emil Francis that Stemkowski was his problem and he'd have to deal with it. They intended on fully using Larry Brown right away. Well, lucky for everyone, it all worked out. Uh, Francis got a hold of Stemkowski and he sweet-talked Pete into reporting to the Rangers. Now, one thing that Francis told Stemkowski that appealed to him and convinced him that he should come to New York uh, was that the city of New York represented a much greater opportunity for Pete's budding radio career. That's right. Pete, in the off-seasons, uh, works as a disc jockey, and he really loves that career. Uh, Francis told Pete that on-air positions could be arranged with one of the many New York radio stations. Now, Pete had planned on working this off-season uh, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, for a radio station there, but there are a couple more radio stations in New York than there are in Winnipeg, so the opportunities for Pete and the exposure are probably much better. A little more on the uh, Tim Horton trade to New York that took place last week. We've uh, been hearing that the Leafs were supposed to get four or five players from the Rangers for Horton, but general manager Jim Gregory says it's likely going to be less than four players, but they'll include players from the minor league Omaha and Buffalo Ranger farm teams and possibly one player currently on the Rangers roster. And of course, Punch Imlac in his weekly column this uh, in the Toronto Telegram this time around complained about the trade, although he believes that the deal is of great benefit to the Maple Leafs and it could help the Rangers win the Stanley Cup. But Punch, of course, is complaining because uh, 
of his own personal situation as general manager of the new Buffalo Sabres expansion team. He says this deal hurts the Sabres because it makes fewer quality players available to his team in the upcoming NHL expansion draft to be held in early June. Now, some of the biggest news this week included the uh, status of a couple of the Eastern Division teams that were expected to be much better than they are this year, or at least how better than they have been in the last month. And that includes the New York Rangers and the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, we'll talk about the downward spile of the Rangers first off. Now, last week, as we mentioned, the Rangers went out and they got all-star defenseman Tim Horton from the Maple Leafs. But even such a high-profile pickup as, as Mr. Horton hasn't righted the Rangers' ship. They've been at or near the top of the standings all season, but over the last couple of weeks, uh, the Rangers have been sputtering, and they dropped uh, three points behind first-place Bruins, just a couple points ahead of third-place Montreal and Detroit, who are battling, actually, for that fourth playoff spot with the Chicago Blackhawks. People are worried in New York, quite rightly so, that this, what they have termed, or the Rangers have termed, as a mild slump, could develop into a full-scale free fall right out of a playoff spot. So really, what's wrong with the Rangers? Well, part of the problem is a lack of scoring from what had been New York's uh, top offensive line. That was the unit of Walter Kachuk, Billy Fairburn, and Dave Ballone. And in the past seven games, up to this week, that trio has scored just one goal. The Rangers absolutely need this line to begin to click again if they want to get back on the beam. Now injuries, I think everyone knew, had been a major factor. Brad Park, Jim Nielsen, and the latest injury this week, Arnie Brown, have left their defense core thin, even with the deal for Horton. Uh, Nielsen is back in the lineup, but he's not 100% at all, and he doesn't look like himself. Another player that the Rangers might be missing more than everybody thought they would is veteran left-winger Donnie Marshall. He's a glue that holds the Rangers' defensive scheme together on the forward line. He went down with a uh, shoulder injury, and it's not uh, known just how long he's going to be out. Things didn't get much better later on during the week when the team went into Montreal and promptly dropped a 5-3 decision to the Habs, who are also in a tailspin. Now after this game, Emil Francis, the general manager coach, announced that Roger Bear, the Broadway playboy, if you want to call him that, the matinee idol of the Rangers, they're supposed to be top right winger. He's been enduring some unspecified personal problems all year, and he just hadn't played up to his potential. Well, Francis announced that he was dropping Joe Bear from his regular right wing spot along Jean Rattel and Vic Hadfield and replacing him with Captain Bob Nevin. Remains to be seen if the Rangers can hang on and, and sneak into a playoff spot. They're really in the desperate straits right now and they have to turn things around pretty quickly or they're going to be on the outside looking in. What they have to hope for is either Detroit, Chicago or Montreal or a couple of those teams go into a slump as well. Montreal right now is a good candidate for that, but we just can't see Canadians not making the playoffs. And speaking of les habitants, you got to wonder what's going on with the Canadians as well. They're looking 
like they could be the odd man out. And that would be the first time in 22 years that the Habs will not make the postseason. Now, they're Every publication that has anything to do with hockey has a story and the writers all have opinions on what's going on in Montreal. Several stories have mentioned that reports of dissension are rife within the team and that coach Claude Ruel, who recently was rewarded with that one-year contract extension, is the problem. These writers cite the cases of recently traded Dick Duff and Gump Worsley as evidence of Ruel's incompetence and his stirring up dissension among the ranks. A lot of the veteran players, including Henry Richard and Jacques Laperriere, have come to Ruel's defense, although it's known that uh, Richard is uh, not particularly enamored with his coach. Richard is a good team man, captain material and he's trying to hold things together le perrier another respected veteran has said that the habs managed to win last year with ruel behind the bench and there's no reason why they can't do it this year like the rangers the big problem that is most obvious with the habs is injuries all season they've had we've been talking about the guys that have been out of the lineup and it's still happening to the Canadians right now John Ferguson J.C. Trombley and John Bellable were returning to full health and there was a lot of optimism that the Habs were going to challenge for first place but in that win over the Rangers at the forum on Wednesday night a terrible blow to Montreal's playoff hopes took place. Actually, two when you think of it. Young defenseman Serge Savard, arguably Montreal's best rear guard all season, he suffered a severely broken left leg when he crashed into a goalpost in the third period of that game. He won't play again this season. Both of the bones in the lower part of Savard's leg were fractured and referee Vern Buffy, who was on the scene, said that he was actually sickened when he saw the leg and it was uh, grotesquely twisted in a way that was completely unnatural. The Habs also lost center Jacques Lemaire with a leg injury late in the game as well, but it was learned later on it wasn't as severe as first thought, and he'd be back in a few days. The Habs did prevail, though, and won that game despite the shock of losing the key player. And it was revealed after the game that there may have been some extra motivation for the Montreal club. A handwritten letter from a distraught mother is said to have had a lot to do with the Canadians winning that game. The letter was posted in the Montreal dressing room before the game with the Rangers Wednesday night. Now, the mother wrote that she wanted the players to know that her six-year-old son, who was dying of leukemia, was a big Habs fan. She explained that his admiration for the team was the main thing in the poor little boy's life, and he was really feeling down about their recent slump. Her request was simple, an awakened Montreal team as the best therapy that the lad could get. The letter closed with a request for anonymity because, as she said, the boy hasn't been told that he's been given just a few months to live. Senator Ralph Baxter of the Canadians summed it up this way. I think we've been feeling sorry for ourselves, and a letter like that has to affect you 
It did affect the Canadians, and they won a big game. Will it push them farther during the season? Well, that remains to be seen. Now, you remember last week uh, we reported that the National Hockey League Referees Association had dismissed Toronto lawyer Joe Kane as their solicitor? Well, it didn't take long as Monday of this week, the NHL, through President Clarence Campbell and Referee-in-Chief Scotty Morrison, announced that they were ready to look at recognizing the officials' association. That's got to be good news for the referees, right? Well, maybe not. As always, with the NHL, there's a catch. Campbell said if it can be shown that all of the referees and linesmen in the NHL are signed up to the association, then the group can make a new application for recognition. Campbell said, we believe such an organization is capable of doing a good job for the officials and helping us too. Although I don't know if he winked when he said it, but he said, we can't have two factions. They've all got to be in the association or as far as there's concerned, there is no association. Now, here's a bit of the, uh, I guess you could call it the NHL Future Watch, if you wish. Uh, The Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series has recently finished up, and their new scoring champion is young Marcel Dion of the St. Catharines Blackhawks. And that's a bit of a surprise. This kid had 55 goals, 77 assists for 132 points on the season. That's 11 more than the much-ballyhooed Gilbert Perrault of the Montreal Junior Canadiens. Now, the interesting part is Dion is not even eligible for this year's National Hockey League Amateur Draft. He still has another year of junior eligibility. I can imagine he's going to take that league apart next season if the Blackhawks of St. Catharines can keep him motivated. But if you know Marcel, Marcel doesn't need much motivation. He loves the game of hockey. He loves every second he spends on skates and he's out there for the love of it. You can see it the way he plays the game. He'll have another big year next season as well. And he's probably going to be at the very top of the 1971 NHL amateur draft. Now, the uh, Ontario Hockey Association announced its Junior A All-Stars as well this week. Pretty interesting uh, selections. The first team, the goaltender, was George Hume of the St. Catharines Blackhawks. The defensemen were Ron Plum of Peterborough and Oshawa's Bob Stewart. The center, no question it would be Gilbert Perrault, Montreal Junior Canadiens. Al McDonough of the St. Catharines Blackhawks was the right winger, and Rick McLeish of Peterborough would patrol the left wing. The second team had John Garrett of Peterborough as the goalkeeper, Steve Cuddy of the Marlies, uh, Jocelyn Gavermont, and Serge Lajeunesse of the Junior Canadians were tied for the defense spots on the second team. Marcel Dion, as we mentioned, he was the second team All-Star center. Buster Harvey of Hamilton took the right wing slot. And on the left side, Bobby Guindon of the Montreal Junior Canadiens. 
And one more Junior A note from this week. Uh, if you followed the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series through the 60s and 70s, you know Eddie Bush, the coach of the Hamilton Red Wings. He was the coach of that team all except for two seasons from 60-61 until 1970 and until this week. The new owner of the Red Wings, or at least the prospective owner, is Nick Durbano. Now, Nick is a Toronto real estate agent whose son plays currently for the Toronto Marlboros. Uh, Nick said that Bush was now uh, being relieved of his duties and was free to make a deal with any club. Now, Eddie Bush's greatest accomplishment was leading that Hamilton Red Wing team to the 1962 Memorial Cup. Now, on the heels of that major gambling investigation that involved baseball superstar Denny McLean and other sports figures in the United States, the National Hockey League Board of Governors has formed a committee to uh, implement a security system within the league to prevent similar occurrences within the NHL. Here's what uh, President Clarence Campbell had to say. First thing he'd made abundantly clear was there is no suspicion of wrongdoing within the NHL com uh, community. But he said that an anti-gambling committee was named to formulate plans and discuss with other professional sports a cooperative effort and perhaps mutual employment of security staff. Looks like it'd be a good deal for uh, retired law enforcement officers, wouldn't it? He said that he would serve as chairman of the NHL committee, and he said that when any information is made available, they've got to have the staff to deal with it. He added that one investigation agency had already offered its services to the NHL. Well, the NHL scoring and Vesna Trophy races coming down to the wire in the next couple of weeks, and it's a pretty interesting situation. Defenseman Bobby Orr is still well ahead of teammate Phil Esposito and Chicago's Stan Makita, and right now it doesn't look like either of those fine players can catch Bobby, who this week would pass the 100-point mark and that's amazing for a defenseman. The top net minders in the Vesna Trophy race are Chicago's Tony Esposito, who uh, was aided by the traded Dennis DeJordi, now with the Kings, and newly acquired Jerry Desjardins, who just has played two games for Chicago since coming from the Kings in the deal that sent DeJordi to the West Coast. They are just ahead of the New York Rangers netminding tandem of Eddie Jockerman and Terry Sachuk. A little note out of Boston we have here, and we're kind of glad to report this. Uh, Fernie Flamin, uh, former captain of the Bruins, and he's coached in the minor leagues, uh, really one of the good guys around the game. He's been disappointed several times in his quest for a National Hockey League coaching post. Well, this week, he's been appointed as the head coach of Northeastern University hockey team, and that's a perfect spot uh, in New England, for uh, Fernie Flamman to carry out and impart his hockey knowledge on good young hockey players. Good for Fernie Flamman. And now we have more of the craziness between the Vancouver Canucks and deposed general manager coach Joe Crozier. 
This week, amazingly, after everything that's happened, the Canucks finally got around General Manager Bud Poyle and the Board of Directors to offering their coaching job to none other than Joe Crozier. That's right. After firing him, after a member of the board uh, basically said he wouldn't shake his hand because Joe called him a liar, they offered Joe the job to coach the team for the rest of this season and at least all of 1970-71, the team's inaugural season in the NHL. Now, team business manager Len Heath said the offer was made with the consent and approval of the team's board of directors. Now, this offer came on the heels of the news that new general manager Bud Poyle who is currently serving as coach of the team while they're still in the Western Hockey League, had been admitted to a Vancouver hospital suffering from recurring nosebleeds. They couldn't get the nosebleed stopped and they put him in the hospital. That left the team without anybody behind the bench. They'd asked Andy Bathgate to do it and he'd refused. Now, Mr. Heath also said that Poyle had up to this point interviewed four other candidates for the Connects coaching position, including former Los Angeles Kings bench, bench boss Hal Laco. A couple of uh, Vancouver hockey writers speculated that this offer to Joe was an attempt to undercut Crozier's breach of contract lawsuit against the team. So this kind of held for a couple days, everyone wondering what the heck was going on. To nobody's surprise, a couple days later, Joe Crozier rejected the job offer that the Canucks had given him. He didn't say anything about it, but his lawyer, Alan McEachern, said that his client turned down the Canucks two offer on two counts. He didn't want to go back under the terms of his old contract, and that's what the club offered him. Uh, the club also, term number two, wasn't prepared to give him full control over playing personnel. Joe wants to be in charge, top to bottom, side to side. He's his own man. He wants his own players. He does not want to have players that Poyle will arrange for him to coach. McEachern said that Metacore, the Minneapolis-based company that now owns the Canucks, offered only to rehire Crozier under conditions spelled out under his old contract. And McEachern said Joe didn't want to go back for a while and then be fired all over again. Well, as the week wound down, there was much speculation that after Cro Crozier's rejection, the Canucks would name their coach by the end of the week. Most people felt it was going to come down to former Red Wings coach Bill Gadsby, who grew up in Western Canada, Alberta to be exact, or fired coach uh, Kings mentor Hal Laco that we just mentioned. By the end of the week, the announcement was made that Laco would become the Canucks Western Hockey League coach immediately for the rest of this season, and he would continue in that role as the team transitioned to the NHL for 1970-71. Also with the Canucks, Greg Douglas, who resigned last week in the wake of Crozier's firing, is back in the fold as the team's publicity director. He was a good young guy, and they didn't really want to lose him. Uh, Bud Poyle also uh, informed the press that he's negotiating with former Oakland Seals coach 
Bert Olmsted to become the bench boss with the team's farm club, wherever that might be next season. It's thought that the Canucks might want to keep their Western Hockey League franchise alive, uh, placing it most likely in Calgary. Now, immediately, of course, there was a lot of speculation about what Joe Crozier's going to do. What was his future? Was he going to go to Buffalo and join his old pal, Punch Imlac? A lot of people discounted this theory and had him going elsewhere. One story this week has Joe applying for a junior franchise in the Western Canada Hockey League. And another story had him leading an effort to place an AHL team in Richmond, Virginia, or maybe even in a new club in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We'll have to stay tuned and see what happens to Joe Crozier. Now, speaking of uh, coaching appointments, uh, here's one we haven't heard. Sounds a bit outlandish right off the top, but you never know. And this is from a pretty good uh, source, Jim Proudfoot in the Toronto Star. He suggests that the Detroit Red Wings might just be looking at Cornell University coach Ned Harkness, who's a native of Ottawa, Ontario. That was just a small note in Proudfoot's column on Saturday of the week. The very next day, however, Jack Barry of the Detroit Free Press seconded the opinion of Proudfoot. And then Monday of the next week, Barry reported that Ned Harkness was indeed interested in coaching the Red Wings. Will this come down to an actual contract offer? We'll have to see in the coming weeks. A lot of people feel that Ned Harkness is the ideal guy to go into the NHL and coach. Others feel that an American college coach has no business behind an NHL team's bench. Stay tuned on that one. By the way, in the same column, Proudfoot had a couple of other interesting notes. Uh, He mentioned that the Blues goalie Jacques Plante will move to the Maple Leafs in the offseason, and Terry Sawchuk would end up going from the New York Rangers to the Blues. Now, Proudfoot doesn't say it's connected to the Tim Horton deal, but others have speculated that this is all part of a convoluted three-team exchange. Proudfoot also said, and this is kind of curious, Jim usually is better than this, but he says that the NHL will probably give the Buffalo Sabres the first pick in this June's amateur draft because the Vancouver Canucks already own more than 50 professional players. Now, I had thought that it had already been announced along the way that the determination of the order of selection for this draft would be by some sort of lottery. Or could Jim be suggesting that that lottery might somehow be prearranged? That's another one I'm not sure. We'll have to see if anybody else has this story in the coming weeks. Uh, Now, another one of those special to the Toronto Star reports from Stan Fischler. Uh, It's reported that National Hockey League President Donald V. Ruck uh, says that the league expects to play matches against a Russian team within two to three years. Fischler quotes Ruck as saying the series of games would be shown worldwide on satellite TV and would involve only a single National Hockey League club rather than an all-star squad. The games would be televised back to North America by the CBS television network, no mention of the CBC, CTV, or any other Canadian outlet, 
but this indicates that the games would not be played in North America, which seems rather absurd to this observer. We'll have to see how this goes uh, with the hindsight of where we are in uh, 2020. We know that games were played in 72, uh, but this was not quite the situation that Donald Ruck is alleged to have described in this story. In another special to the star story, but there's no byline on this one. Although if you happen to get a chance to read the uh, story, you can probably guess by the style who might have written it. Uh, this story says that Alex Del Vecchio has decided to retire at the end of the 1969-70 season. Uh, the story features quite an extensive interview with Del Vecchio and goes into great detail into why Alex says to the uh, unnamed reporter that he's finished as a player at the end of this season. Now, of course... The very reputable Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press looked into this right away. Uh, he got a hold of Del Vecchio, asked him what was going on. Uh, Jack, if anybody, would have probably known about this before anyone else. Del Vecchio told him that he has not made any definite decision on his playing status and that his wife, Teresa, did not want him to quit playing hockey and was leaving the choice entirely up to Alex. A side note here. Alex continued playing 11 games into the 1973-74 season. Philadelphia Flyers playoff chances received a huge boost this week, or at least they thought they did, when injured defenseman Wayne Hillman and Joe Watson were slated to return to action. Hillman had a knee sprain, Watson a broken foot, or at least a bone broken in his foot, and they were all set to return to action, but that didn't last. Hillman's knee did not respond to treatment, and it got worse, and he was held out of games again, and Ralph McSwain was called up from Quebec of the American Hockey League to take his place. If you were a Flyers fan in 1970, you were not happy that Ralph McSwain was back on the Flyers' blue line instead of with AHL Quebec. By the way, Flyers broadcaster Gene Hart related this story about an encounter he had last week. Hart said that he was over watching the Jersey Devils of the Eastern League when a couple, man and wife, uh, introduced themselves, came up to him in the crowd. The husband said that he listens to the games and he just loves Gene Hart's broadcasts. The wife, however, smiled. She said she also listens and Gene seems to get worse every game. Well, if you know Gene Hart, you know that he he's not... Uh, phased by anything and he's very gracious as well well he's never stuck for a comeback and he said maybe I'm just out of shape Gene Hart always uh, gracious didn't have anything bad to say to these two people and they probably had quite a thrill meeting a fellow who eventually turned into nothing less than a broadcasting legend well, the Oakland Seals recalled forward Brian Perry from the American Hockey League Providence Reds because they have more injury problems. Norm Ferguson, having a bad season in his second NHL year, uh, is one of a number of players who's gotten an ankle sprain this year. He's going to be out for a while. And Howie Menard, a center, is going to be missing for at least 10 days with a tear in the ligaments in his right knee. Now, Howie came to the Seals earlier in this season uh, in the deal that St. Gene 
Ubriaco to the Chicago Blackhawks. And knee injuries seem to be going around the NHL as well right now. The Toronto Maple Leafs lost controversial center Mike Shaky Walton for the rest of the season with torn ligaments in his right knee. Now Mike was injured, not in a game, but when he was checked by teammate Rick Lee in a practice this week. Uh, Danny Johnson had been up to fill in for the injured Jim Harrison last week, but it was pretty clear Danny wasn't ready for NHL action, so he was sent back to Tulsa, and right now it's unclear whom the Leafs might recall. Uh, Doug Acom was a possibility, but the word is he's not completely healthy either. We'd have to stay tuned and see if the Leafs can find a replacement for Mike Walton. And another injury, boy, there's a lot of them this week. Pittsburgh Penguins left winger Val Fontaine might require surgery. This has got to be painful to repair a torn stomach muscle, which hasn't improved since Val was first heard about a week ago. The team isn't sure and the surgery will bear this out, but they fear the injury could actually be a hernia and that might keep Val out the rest of the year. Uh, we're hoping Val Fontaine, one of the game's really good guys, can get back in the lineup for the Penguins. And we have one more injury note of significance. Uh, the Boston Bruins goalie, Jerry Cheevers, uh, he'd been complaining of a bruised chest muscle. Well, it wasn't a bruised chest muscle. It was a fractured rib. Now that's going to put him out for at least the next weekend. And quite likely the Bruins are going to have to bring up young John Adams from Oklahoma City of the Central Hockey League. Fortunately for Boston, this is not as bad as it could be because veteran Eddie Johnston is at the top of his game right now. And the Bruins shouldn't miss a beat with Cheesy on the sidelines and EJ between the pipes. Here's a really nice story out of the small town of Georgetown, Ontario. The first Hall of Fame to honor a minor hockey organization, the Little NHL, will be opened in that southern Ontario town in 1972. It'll be located in the Georgetown Arena, and that is there where the Little National Hockey League staged its first triple header, Back in 1936, now they have an organizing committee and they're getting things done very well. And the first graduate of the little NHL to make the real big league, that's Bob Goldham. He's the president of the executive committee and he'll also be honored at the opening and that should be quite an affair. Well, the trade deadline, as we mentioned, had passed last week. But guess what? The rumors continue to come out even now. Now, this is one that's out of Western Canada. And it wasn't clear on whether this is something that could happen in the off season or something that was turned down recently. But the uh, story out of the Calgary Herald had the Toronto Maple Leafs offering forwards Murray Oliver and Floyd Smith to the Chicago Blackhawks. In exchange, the Blackhawks were supposed to be giving up left winger Dennis Hall. Now I would say that if someone made that offer and the other side accepted it, that two fools would have been met. There is absolutely no chance 
the Blackhawks would trade Murray Oliver and Floyd Smith for Dennis Hall. They would not take those two guys for Dennis. And I'm sure that Jim Gregory would not make an offer like that unless it was completely in jest. Now, the Minnesota North Stars right winger Bill Collins is cashing in on a nice bonus clause in his contract this season. Bill negotiated to get $100 from the North Stars for every goal he scored over 10 this season. Ren Blair must have felt this was a good bet for the team when he negotiated the pact with Collins. Bill only had nine goals in each of his first two NHL seasons, and during his minor league career, he had hit the 20-goal mark only once. Blair put the uh, pact or put the uh, clause in Bill's contract, and a little motivation is a great thing. Bill Collins this season has now got 20 goals, and he's earned himself a cool $1,000 extra in his paycheck this season. Now this week, one of the strangest streaks in hockey continued. On Saturday evening at Maple Leaf Gardens, the Boston Bruins lost to the Maple Leafs 2-1. The Bruins have 87 points this season, and the Leafs, with 66, are 21 points in arrears. So any Toronto win over Boston must be considered quite the upset. Now, the Bruins have been a better team than the Leafs for the past few years. There's no argument over that. Their 1969 playoff series showed just how superior Boston is to Toronto. But it has been since November 27th, 1965, that the Bruins have won a regular season game in Toronto. Now, Bruins center Derek Sanderson, in his ever-classless way, could only explain it this way. Sanderson said, I can't figure it out. I found it hard to play well in this old dump when I was a junior. And I still find it hard, and it's still an old dump. Now, Sanderson, of course plays his whole home games in Boston Garden, speaking of dumps. Harry Sinden, coach of the Bruins, blamed the loss on bad ice at the Gardens. It was a pretty entertaining game, really a good pace throughout much of it. Uh, the teams exchanged goals in the first period, and we have those uh, goals right here. Boston nothing, Toronto nothing, 15.52 to go in this the first period. It comes back to McKinney. After those two goals, the teams fell into a fairly tight checking mode and the score remained that way until 6-10 of the third period when Paul Henderson netted a power play goal and that proved to be the winner. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't show you the video here because the goal that Henderson scores looks amazingly like another goal that he would score a couple of years later, and let's hear the audio for that. On the face of it, back to Keon again. In the Elman, Henderson. Goes to Henderson again. Out to Keon. Off the boards to McKinney. 
He shot it around back of the net. Henderson's got it. Back to Ellis. Out to Keon. Keon shoots. It was quite a finish to quite a game at Maple Leaf Gardens. Both goalies, Eddie Johnston and Bruce Gamble, were spectacular. I remember watching that game 50 years ago and watching it again this week brought back a lot of memories. One of the Leafs' better performances in what had been a dismal season. So everyone, that's our show for this week. Uh, Quite a lot of information again, as it seems to be in this 1969-70 season. So what did we learn this week? Well, we learned that after dropping their uh, lawyer, the National Hockey League Officials Association now might get some recognition from the league. But of course, we learned, as it usually is with the NHL, there's a catch. We learned that the crazy saga of Joe Crozier and the Vancouver Canucks got a little goofier this week, if that was even possible. But the Canucks finally had a new coach by the end of the week. And we find that a surprise candidate for the Detroit Red Wings coaching post has emerged. Now, some of the stories we're working on next week, uh, we'll look at some of the challenges that TV producers are facing when broadcasting hockey. They seem to have it down to a science in Canada, but the American producers are having a little trouble adjusting to the rigors of this fast-moving sport. We'll look at the player given the most credit for the resurgence of the Chicago Blackhawks this season, and we will learn about the not unexpected demise of the Canadian national hockey team. Please join us next week for another 50-year trip back in time to the sports world of 1970. Now, the 50 Years Ago in Podcast is uh, put together every week by Andy Cole. He's our producer, and we can't thank Andy enough for all his hard work. He's very professional, and he makes us sound far better than I ever could on my own. Uh, The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro music. And you've got to see them if you ever get a chance. They put on shows throughout Toronto and across the country as well when they're on tour. Their new CD should be out later this year. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Nail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. Uh, don't forget to give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast hosted by Andy Cole. Each week, he and a special guest engage in great conversation and also write a song, brand new musical piece, which they perform at the end of the show. Uh, it's a lot of fun. We think you should give it a listen. Now, you can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, and that's at Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course, you can get this through your favorite podcast app and on Spotify. We'd like to thank everyone who tunes into the show as they do every week. We enjoy bringing this to you. Uh, It's a lot of fun, and it's been a very educational experience. On that note, we thank you, and we will see you next time. When the 